Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Amanda Schoefs takes a decidedly interdisciplinary approach to making work. Primarily a composer and vocalist, her artistic work, however, encompasses a set of diverse practices, including improvisation, painting, drawing, printmaking, poetry, installation, and movement. Her works have been commissioned and presented worldwide, including recent inclusion on the 2015 Mata Festival in New York City. Amanda is on the composition faculty at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Peck School of the Arts, where she also curates the series Sensoria, Experience in Timed-Based Media and Performance for Innova, the Institute of Visual Arts. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, let's get started here with a little bit of background. I'm always interested to know from my guests the moment, if if you can pinpoint a specific moment, that you knew that you would be an artist, or at least a time when you maybe you were starting to realize realize that you could respond creatively to your environment. And feel free to take that's very open-ended. Feel free to take us wherever you'd like. For me, it happened when I was extremely young. I'm a vocalist. And as a young child, a very young child, I was always exploring sound and singing, mumbling, babbling, creating stories and exploring different types of phonetics and sound. So I always, I essentially was always singing as a young person. And my mother was a musician, is a musician. She is a pianist and performs regularly for the Catholic church that she's part of. So I grew up with her playing piano, teaching piano lessons at home and attending church with her and singing in choirs and interacting with music on a weekly basis. Um, I don't know that there was exactly a particular moment in time when I realized I was a creative artist. I think it has always really been part of who I was. So I'm having a hard time answering that question. Well, that's, that, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, um, I have to say that, you know, for, uh, for myself, I I don't remember a time when when drums weren't part of my life. When I, you know, I have a photo of right. me when I was three years old behind a set of drums, and so drums and percussion and hitting things. Uh, I don't remember a time when I didn't have sticks in my hands. So I can relate right. to uh, I can relate to the idea that uh, maybe you don't even remember a time when you weren't singing or or making things, and that that actually makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, so talk, talk to me about your very first, uh, work, uh, professionally then, or, or if you want to talk about your student years, but I'd like to kind of get into how you got started making work. Yeah. So when I, academia has always been a really huge part of my life and I did my undergraduate degree at the university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Peck school of the arts. And was um, simultaneously doing a degree in composition and technology and vocal performance. 
And although I wasn't, I didn't consider my work to be professional at that point, I was um, constantly composing and performing works, both um, works by other composers as a vocalist and my own compositions and have and writing for specific instrumentalists or doing work for electronics. So um, after that, I went to Mills College and had a really dynamic, incredible experience there as part of the very experimental and improvisatory composition program. At least that was how I involved myself in the composition program. And again, I was composing and writing constantly and having works performed. And I feel like when I graduated from college, I was able to continue that in some light. Things obviously change a lot when you're outside of academia. You don't have as much, it's a little bit different setting up shows. Um, the resources aren't readily available in the same way. So it becomes a little bit more DIY and things like that. But um, when I was a teenager growing up, I was very much involved in the punk and noise scene in my community in rural Wisconsin. <laughs> and um, was very used to that, just setting up shows and events. So I was living in San Francisco after I graduated from Mills and wanted to do more shows. So I just started um, setting up events in my house. I was renting a room in a house with three other people and would clear out all of my furniture, put it in my roommate's room and do shows in my room. So <laughs> in addition to other uh, events and places around town, but I think my career really started to take off professionally after I started teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Peck School of the Arts and having access to a studio where I could record, having access to recitals halls, our recital hall, and other performance spaces where I could book my own shows. And I've been extremely active with doing that, with um, booking, directing, and curating events and shows, and, and to some extent, making things happen, but then also being really closely involved with friends and colleagues who are just as assertive and active in creating shows and being lucky enough to participate and create music with people like that as well. Yeah, fantastic. I've, so, always, I've always thought that sort of the new music world and the punk rock world had a lot in common. You know, it's kind of been my do. experience. They do. And the noise scene, Milwaukee has a really incredible noise scene and they're very similar in some ways. And I think in that kind of do it yourself, you have to be assertive to get your work out there. And it really takes the community to support each other's work. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, improvisation. And I okay. noticed I noticed that you had st you've uh, spent some time and studied with some really heavy improvisers in our um, in our field, including Pauline Oliveros. Um, and so I, I would be interested to know about your experiences with that, how you got started mm -hmm. with it, and and what you're doing, um, how you use improvisation in your music now. Yes. So when I was a student at UWM. Uh, we had one composition faculty at that point in time, Steve Nelson Rainey, who's a really incredible um, saxophonist and pianist. 
And he is really the catalyst for getting me interested in improvisation as a young person. He set up a wonderful event for me where I was able to go in and improvise along with two other young people with a dance improv class that was being taught by Deb Lowen, who is the artistic director of Wild Space Dance Company in Milwaukee. So my very first really experience with improvising was being placed as a small trio in a room full of dancers and working and collaborating and interacting with them. And that was right before I graduated and went to Mills. And when I decided to go to Mills, I, this is kind of, it sounds totally ridiculous to me now, but I had just finished a double major in voice and composition and was actually hoping to focus all of my energy on composition and to essentially quit singing. Not quit necessarily completely, but I was feeling divided and I wasn't old enough yet to have really find that balance between both professions. Um, but then I arrived on Mills campus and that very day I ended up meeting someone who's now a very close friend of mine. His name is Jason Hoops. He's a um, bassist, composer, a really incredible improviser who lives in the Bay Area. And we immediately connected and went into a very resonant hallway and started improvising. And that was just kind of the environment at Mills. Everyone was very warm and open and excited about working together. And people were spontaneously getting together and creating music on a daily basis. Mm. And part of that environment was obviously the incredible faculty that teach and mentor and have friendships and often live on campus. And some of that is the students who attend the college too are really looking for that type of collaborative um, work. So um, after that experience, I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to continue singing and improvising. And I'm really glad I did. My first semester at Mills, I um, took a class. Um, I auditioned and was part of the improv ensemble, which was taught by Fred Frith that year. And um, working with him really expanded everything. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I didn't even, I knew very little about improvisation before I started to seriously study it at Mills. Yeah. So, well, well it's in, yeah. improvisation, just uh, if I might uh, ask another question here or, an, or make an observation. Um, when I was doing my uh, doctorate, uh, there was a, a group that uh, was at the Cincinnati Conservatory, and there were a group of students there that were really into um, improvisation. And, you know, my uh, my understanding and background with improvisation was in the jazz idiom, not in, in a sort of free improvisation or a noise improvisation or, you know, and I'd been exposed to <laughs> Pauline Oliveros and that sort of uh, deep listening uh, kinds of improvisational structures, but... Uh, it really wasn't until um, until I was around some really fine improvisers that I that I sort of uh, that the curtain was pulled back on this on this practice. I met um, 
a really great improviser, Don Nichols, uh, just recently. He and his partner have a, a dance and percussion duo. Uh, out, they're based in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, anyway, Don is just an incredible improviser. And uh, I had him to the university to do a residency. And, and you know, my students hadn't seen this kind of improvisation before. It's not something that I do regularly. And, uh, you know, when you're in the presence of a really fine improviser, it's like magic, you know, uh, and things are invented and sounds are made and structures are created. And it's just, it can be a real magic thing. So I wondered uh, what was the, uh, what was the spark for you with improvisation? I mean, you mentioned that that's what kind of brought you back to singing or, or allowed you to somehow continue with this sort of singing. But, um, what is it that, what is it that grabbed you about it? I would say that, improvisation actually helped me find my voice and opened up an entire world of vocal possibilities for me that I wasn't even aware existed for me before. Hmm. I was trained classically and the head of the vocal program at the university where I was studying was really supportive and let me sing more modern music, which, you know, meant of studying Schoenberg's book of the Hanging Gardens and some of John Cage's earlier works and things like that. But I was definitely not uh, trained in extended vocal technique and started to explore more non-traditional sounds while I was at Mills. For me, I my first semester at Mills, I was placed in Joelle Leandra's studio. She's a really phenomenal improviser based in France an upright bassist, but she also sings. And um, she encouraged me to sit in on a workshop she was doing on improvisation. And seeing her perform was like absolute, is absolute magic. She's phenomenal. Her presence, her intensity, she gives her entire self as she plays. And for me, that type of energy is what is the most exciting thing. And that's really what I go for um, in my works and when I'm improvising. So I think presence, being 100% present when you're playing not thinking about anything, not not questioning what came before, but really being uh, mindfully present and having that um, kind of energy on stage is really important. And it was also very fascinating for me when I was studying with uh, Joelle and later with um, Roscoe Mitchell and Zeno Parkins, whom I also had the privilege to study improvisation with, that there were specific ideas that were very important within this type of improvisation, but they were also ideals that were enthralling to me, like the idea that all instruments are equal and free improv. There is not the hierarchy of instrumentation. There's not a hierarchy of people have to come forward at certain time to take solos and other people have to come back or any, any of that stuff. And as a vocalist, that was really liberating for me because 
you know, traditionally the voice is not always treated that way. Hmm. So it allowed me to explore voice in very different ways. Hmm, that's interesting. I, um, I've done quite a bit with um, spoken texts, mm-hmm. um, percussion and spoken texts. And one of the things that when I first started doing this, I, when I discovered that I had kind of a knack for it, some of the pieces that I would choose would have some singing in it. And uh, for some reason, I could do the spoken text fine, felt comfortable, felt confident with that. But the singing always terrified me. <laughs> and, um, and so I've always, I've always actually had a, a great uh, admiration for singers who can stand up there on stage with nothing uh, and, and make music with, with, you know, with the voice. I, I think it's a, for me, that takes a lot of bravery. I, I you know, I'm, I speak better from behind, uh, you know, things that I'm hitting. <laughs> so, um, I, I really believe that improvisation and especially incredible improvisation, um, the performer is really embracing their own vulnerability on stage because it, it is about vulnerability. Mm. You're um, completely exposed and in this very human way, which I find, I, I love that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, that makes sense, and it comes across in your performing. I mean, uh, in some of the improv improvised piece, pieces that I've seen of yours, where you're doing these kind of uh, grunting and and very sort of wild vocalizations and breathing <laughs> and noises, and oh, it's um, it's really I can imagine that that must how that must make one feel vulnerable. I mean, I I can I can imagine <laughs> that. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk about that at all, about how you arrived sure. at this kind of improvisation with the voice? Yeah. So when I first started to study free improvisation, I felt like it was important and it was impressed on me that that all of the instruments in the group are um, interacting on an equal basis. I think that there's a very natural tendency when someone is... Uh, speaking or singing and they're using language, um, uh, sensical language, it could be lyrics, it could could be just a string of words. But once language is being used in that way, I think there's a huge uh, draw for people to focus in on the voice and our brains want to understand the communication that's happening. And I felt uncomfortable um, bringing in my own text and lyrics in a free improv setting at that point because I felt like I was imposing my own meaning on everyone's contribution to the music. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> because of that, I decided two things while I was at Mills. One was that I wanted to learn how to improvise without using any Um, traditional lyrics or poetry and I also wanted to learn how to improvise without amplifying my voice. I wanted to learn how to have a palette of techniques that were strong enough that I could compete with a trombone and an upright bass and an electric guitar or a drum kit or whatever (laughs) whomever I was playing with at the time and I did. I, I didn't I didn't start to really explore 
uh, use of electronics until later. And I'm glad that I did because it gave me a really strong foundation of extended techniques that um, I can pull from and draw from in different situations. I also started to become really interested with the idea that our the human brain really wants to comprehend and understand what somebody's saying or singing. And this is a little bit later in my professional career. I, I started to and continue to become very interested in phonetics and phonemes, breaking words apart into smaller parts and um, deconstructing them in a sense and then reconstructing them into different language or language that still is based on a root word, but different people would comprehend as potentially different sounds and different words, and people could draw their own ideas or meaning out of it. Hmm. So <clears throat> that's something that I became very excited about. And then some of the other sounds that I um, explore frequently within my vocal palette are just sounds that I've really fallen in love with. Um, one of them, as you mentioned, is breathwork. And I was frustrated early on about the fact that the human voice is limited by breath and decided that since it was limited by breath that I would incorporate breath and the sounds of breath as part of my uh, performance practice. So that can mean a lot of different things and I can realize it in different ways, but it definitely became an important sound in my palate. Uh, mentioned when with the with the breath sounds, I was sort of curious if you had ever been influenced by Inuit throat singing or or that it's sort of a. I, I'm assuming you probably know what that is. It's like a kind of a, how would you describe it? Uh, like a, a guttural, breathy kind of back and forth, but usually two singers back and forth. And uh, I didn't know if that was something that uh, was influenced on you or because I sometimes hear things like that when in your... Yeah. Um, um, well, singing in your vocal fry register, which is the lowest vocal register, is very fascinating. And I have... I have not had the opportunity to work with a, an Inuit vocalist. I would love to have that opportunity and learn more about how to sing in that way, but um, I've definitely taken the time to try to explore my lowest register and to see what could happen mm -hmm. from that. So for me, I'm not... I don't have a lot of control over extremely low tones, but I can get them to resonate hmm. sometimes. Well, let's um, let's move on a little bit uh, to a different topic here. Let's talk about some of your compositions, and uh, I want to talk about the craft a little bit because, <clears throat> particularly, your works are very visual in in nature. In fact, I think 
Uh, certainly the piece that, that I'm fam- most familiar with, You Burn Us, is the piece that uh, we did here that I had my students perform. Uh, definitely could stand on its own as a visual art piece. Each page of that score is, uh, I mean, really beautiful. And so I, I'm, there are a lot of questions here with, you know, how, how did you get started with this sort of printmaking and, and, you know, how did you make that particular score would be another question. And, uh, there are also in that one, some printed texts along with the kind of graphic, uh, notation. So, but many of your compositions stay away from traditional notation. Many of them use uh, this sort of uh, graphic notation. So let's start with with that and and see where the see where the thread goes. Sure. Um, so just like I grew up singing, I grew up painting and drawing and doing visual art. And actually, for a time when I was in high school, I thought I might pursue a career as a visual artist instead of a musician. So, it's always been a huge part of my creative practice and artistic life. And when I was at Mills College, I, well, before that, I would, when I was sketching out a composition, I would often draw um, overview sketches and really dig in and draw different shapes, um, uh, texture, create different textures and things like that to help me Um, realize and implement my ideation and sometimes I would work with paint and things like that as well but I ultimately would always end up with a more through composed composition and then when I was at Mills I ended up showing Joelle Leandra some of my paintings that I was doing as preliminary sketches for a composition and she just looked at me and was like why do you need to change this into traditional notation? This is notation. And hadn't really thought of it that way up until that point as um, my painted ideation being a legitimate form of notation. Hmm. Um, And when she encouraged me to explore it, it just kind of broke open this entire world for me. And I'm lucky that I have a fair amount of skill as a visual artist and I'm able to really realize my ideas in that way. So while I was at Mills, I did a series of works that were paintings, um, working with predominantly inks and watercolors. And um, then as I left college, I started to explore other means of, of creating scores. And my um, husband, and um, he's been my partner for years now, (laughs) is a visual artist. So he, at some point around the time when I was commissioned, or probably about a year before I was commissioned to do You Burn Us, was encouraging me to um, try working in Photoshop as a way to collaged together different ideas and parts of the pieces that I was designing and working on. Hmm. I was getting a little frustrated with having to um, compose everything, sketch things out, and then paint the final project. Um, Because when you're working with inks and things like that, you know, it takes one one small um, differentiation from your score and you have something quite different. And I work a lot with raw mark and gesture and things like that in my paintings. So 
um, it was definitely a time where I was kind of itching to try something new. And in 2011, Paul had a um, teaching position at RIT, the Rochester Institute of Technology. He was a sabbatical replacement for Keith Howard, who was the head of the printmaking department. And our classes at the time, I was teaching a class on um, improvisation and aleatoric scores, and he was teaching an advanced creative printmaking class. I think it was actually called experimental printmaking. But our students did a semester-long exchange project, and I was lucky enough to go there and do a residency for a week. And that was my first opportunity to be in a printmaking studio and start working on prints. Hmm. So um, at that point, Paul put down a bunch of materials in front of me, and I was in the studio a lot with him and with his classes. We're helping them work on their projects. They were doing, my composition students created graphic scores that his printmakers printed, and then they created response prints that my students performed. And they performed all of the works on a final concert. But then I was also, I had time to explore printmaking, and so he would put down different types of plates in front of me and just say, work. Don't worry about what the process of how this will unfold and what it will look like, just work. So I created a lot of prints that way. And um, nothing ever really became of them until I was commissioned by New Keys to do You Burn Us. And I decided to start with those prints. So I did high resolution scans of the prints and started by zeroing in on smaller compositions within the visual work that I really loved and using that as a basis to start the rest of the ideation and composition for the piece. I also used some um, painting painted notation that I had done previously. Some of it came from a body of work that I had done called, this is called Breathing, which had some um, musical gestures that were similar to traditional notation that I had painted that I thought were really um, stunning and I wanted to reconfigure and incorporate those. And then I started creating and um, working with new materials as well. So it was a lot of work by hand, digitizing things, and then reconfiguring and imagining them digitally to create the scores. So when you do these high-resolution scans and then you take the score into Photoshop, I'm assuming that then you work with it digitally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So so how much of the, uh, how much of the finished score is a digital creation and how much of it was from your original um, print work? Most of Ubernus was from original handwork, both print and um, painting. Okay. Very, very little was um, uh, finalized, or uh, the word I'm looking for is very little was created in Photoshop. And there are a couple examples that I think are actually really clear of the creation in Photoshop. 
Um, for example, one of the visual scores is um, a close-up of one of my uh, prints. It was an etching, so it has a lot of scratches in it, and it's um, a bunch of staves, very untraditional staves. They converge in non-traditional ways. Their lengths are all non-traditional, and their spacing between them is variant. And there's a little small black open circle in the top center of that particular piece. And then there's actually a variation of that piece later in the um, score. And the variation of it <laughs> actually came from printing mistakes. <laughs> so ah. um, I was learning a lot when I was working in Photoshop. And I think the work I did in Photoshop was pretty basic. But um, some of the things that ended up happening were from me putting the paper that I was printing on double-sided in our printer the wrong way and learning what the right way was and then learning that you could have really beautiful overlays and mistakes through putting it in incorrectly mm. and playing mm. with that process. Wow. And then finding things that I really loved Rescanning them and including them in the in the final product. So, well, with this it, with this particular piece, let let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of uh, the different realizations of of this piece. We so I can tell you about the the version that we did, and I'll make sure and send you a recording soon. I've got all, all of the recordings from the concert now, but uh, last uh, last fall I. I got into instrument design and creation, and I made my first instrument. And mm -hmm. um, I, I got really excited about it, and and I was looking for uh, you know other people that were doing this kind of thing. And then, not only that, I was looking for pieces or improvisational structures that I could use to perform on my on my newly constructed instrument. And so uh, last summer, then uh, I have a summer workshop that I do for percussion students, and um, I tasked them with creating their own instruments. And I, you know, I went and got all the raw materials and brought uh, brought the raw materials and the tools, and said, "Here it is. Uh, at the end of the week, you have to have something to play on the concert." <laughs> and so, <laughs> so they all uh, created their uh, their own sort of instruments, sort of inspired by mine for sure, and and a few others. Uh, Tom Nunn also sent. Uh, I had a, one of his creations, and so I showed them that, and we looked at lots of different things. At any rate, a uh, couple of my students, a few of them, had made decent instruments, and I felt like they needed some uh, opportunity to continue to develop that. So we, I was on a on the hunt then for interesting uh, graphic or open scores that we could use uh, to for them to sort of develop their. Um, instrumental uh, their instruments but also their skill at improvising with them and and using uh you know having an outlet so we came upon your piece and decided to um, program it one of the things that i like about your piece particularly because i've done a lot of graphic music and the ones that tend to work are the ones that have well i won't say that i can't say that 100 percent let me let me put it this way. 
some musician per- percussion, but also non-percussion friends of mine that are sort of looking at these kinds of scores and interested in graphic notation. Sometimes uh, people have trouble with, uh, musicians have trouble with graphic scores that don't have any instructions. And I even had uh, a friend of mine said, don't you think some of these kinds of pieces are naively conceived? So in other words, it's a, it's a painting. It's not really a musical score, but in the hands of the right person, it can be really interesting and fascinating. With your pieces, I mean, I think, uh, I, as I said before, I think many of these things could stand on their own as just a piece of visual art. But what you give in the notes are very detailed um, performance suggestions. I just remember reading the reading the notes to my students and them getting sort of un- understanding how, how to do this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I don't know that it's worth going into so much detail about it, but you know, how, how do you respond to, to, how would you respond to someone who would say, <laughs> well, a graphic score like this, it's, it's not, it's not really a musical score. Um, it's, it's too naively conceived. What, what is yeah. your response to that? Um, well, I think that's an, in, it's definitely something that I've been told and, um, from both uh, more negative places, coming from both more negative places where people were being dismissive and also coming from places where, like I recently had somebody tell me that they, um, can I can I swear on your podcast? <laughs> you, you can, and I'll, I'll, even, I'll even label it so that. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, I had recently went, um, had somebody tell me that they, when I was in New York and I performed Intimate Addictions, which is another, uh, quite different, but another graphic work of mine, that they thought graphic notation was bullshit, but that they were incredibly impressed with my performance and really surprised that it came from a graphic score. So I, my, you know, my response when people are being negative about notation like this is that they don't have the education on the performance practice, that they don't really understand it as a practice because it is a practice. And as my students often find out when they decide that they want to try their hand at improvisatory scores, is they're really hard to write. (laughs) Mm -hmm. To write an improvisatory score that has found an excellent balance between the materials that the composer is controlling and the materials that the composer is leaving in the hands of the musicians who are realizing the score is really important and setting it up in a way where you're clearly defining what those uh, those different ideas are so that there's no question in the performer is really important. I want my anyone who's realizing my scores to do it with full confidence and in order to do that I need to be really clear with my ideation which is why I painstakingly write my um, my performance and program notes. So I'm really glad to hear that um, you and your students had a positive experience with reading them and, and understanding them. Um, I also, when I write scores in this manner, I am an improviser. I do free improvisation in groups with people I've known for a long time, with people I've just met that day, or an hour before the show starts. 
And um, I also play a lot of improvisatory scores. And when I compose in this manner, I never do anything that I would, I let me re restate how I'm saying that. I always know what one possible realization would sound like. So when I was working on You Burn Us, it was a commission by Regina Schaefer and Kanoko Nishi Smith, who are members of New Keys, which is a wonderful ensemble based in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Kanoko is an incredible improviser. And I knew that when she specifically commissioned me to do an improvisatory score, that I could really push the boundaries for myself of what I thought a score was. And that's part of what this piece was about for me. Hmm. But as I created each page, I only included images that I knew I could perform, that I knew how I could realize the image. That was really important to me, that I didn't include anything that I just thought was a beautiful visualization, but only included things that I could legitimately um, play. And I think that's, that's actually really important. I have had the privilege to exhibit some of my graphic scores in um, museums and galleries, and that's been really exciting. But I'm always very careful that the score, the purpose of the score is to be um, an object that helps communicate my ideas about sound to someone who's going to realize that sound yeah and yes. it can't just be uh visually interesting so yeah well although i think it helps <laughs> when it's strong visually so yeah but. well it's as as someone who's been interested also in in graphic scores and i've done a number of them and i've done scores that are graphic but very very specific instructions and very clear structures and this type of thing uh, and then also the complete opposite end of the spectrum but the one through line there for me uh, and this is i'm just speaking for me personally is freedom i the first time i was able to do a graphic score or the first piece i did uh, was a herbert brin score and i felt this incredible freedom that i've never felt before from from any other uh, piece of music um, in that, that you you know, there was no, the only thing that I was bound by was the clock, 
<laughs> and my own imagination because that was a time-based piece uh, mm-hmm. that I that I played. So the only limitation was you it had to happen in you know each page had to happen in one minute's time, and that was really it. Uh, you know, and you had to follow all these instructions. But there was just this great freedom that I felt doing that kind of thing, and um, I I really appreciated that. The other thing that's really interesting about playing graphic scores, and maybe you could speak to this, is and maybe this is kind of what you were getting at earlier or what I was getting at earlier too, is that, you know, without this score, we wouldn't have made the same piece that we made, you know, um, your, your piece, you burn us gave the students, um, it conjured things for the, in their imagination that they definitely would not have thought of on their own. And Mm -hmm. certainly through the process of, of working with them and, and working through their ideas as they were responding to your score, uh, you know, that's a unique process to be sure, but certainly they would not have come up with those things without this score, you know? So there is something, there is something to it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't agree that, that with the person that said graphic notation is bullshit. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't agree with that, but I do think that it takes a special kind of performer uh, to, to meet the composer halfway in a graphic piece. And actually, I have started using a different language to talk about the performance of something that's graphic or improvisatory. Um, Instead of saying that um, this group or this person or individual performed my composition, I'll say that they realized it, which I think is a nice way of um, showing that conspiracy if you will i love that word (laughs) yeah yeah he said he said conspiracy you know and it literally means to conspire to breathe together so so that was a beautiful thing that that herbert brun would would say it's a perfect perfect word for that collaboration yeah let's see i i want to make sure that we talk before we get to our our last segment, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about teaching, uh, because okay. that's that's something that we have in common uh, and common ground there. So, and I'm I was also really intrigued by this uh, work that you've been able to do at the Institute of Visual Arts there at the at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. It seems like a really interesting place with all kinds of. Uh, cool stuff happening. I mean, uh, I recently met, uh, Christopher Burns from there and, uh, and anyway, it just, you know, talking to him and now talking to you, it it just seems like there's lots of interesting people and lots of sort of, uh, interdisciplinary kind of activities and seems like a real community of artists. Milwaukee has an incredible community of artists, um, both, within and outside of academia. Um, there are some really incredible groups of people who come together to support um, the arts, both music and interdisciplinary arts, visual arts, film has a lot um, going on. There's a lot going on in the film community. So for a, you know, a smaller city, it's a very exciting place to be. So my specific question for you with regards to teaching is how you've managed to incorporate your research interests 
and your performing interests into your teaching. I mean, you mentioned this whole exchange program between printmakers and and teaching a class in aleatoric uh, improvisational performance. I mean, how how did you how did that how how did you do that? <laughs> well, um, when I was invited to teach at the university. There were several things that they needed me to teach. One is I am part of our, I teach as part of our core music theory, um, which is, you know, basic, any, all kinds of basics of music theory. And that class, I, I'm not incorporating quite as much into my personal research and practice. So that we do do a lot of listening in that class, which can range from, anything from a Bach prelude to um, we just listened to recent Pulitzer Prize winner Julia Wolf's um, composition. So I do try to bring in some things that are contemporary into my theory classes. But what I was really excited about teaching when I came to the university was a class. It's a workshop with an revolving title. The last two springs that I've taught it, it's been called Experimental Improvisation. And I teach students the art of free improvisation. And that's been an absolutely wonderful and exciting thing to teach, challenging to yeah, teach. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I may have missed it. What <laughs> What was it originally? What was the class originally before you took it? Um, the first semester... It was called Improvisation and Aleatoric Scores, and we focused more on um, per the performance and composition of uh, graphic and improvisatory scores. And then I changed the topic to experimental improvisation and focusing on the art of free improvisation. I see. So this did this class already exist then when you got there? It did, and it was uh, the most alluring class that I was offered to teach. I was wow. very excited about it. Yeah, great. Um, and, and since then, a colleague of mine, Steve Nelson Rainey, has retired, and I also have started um, teaching his, his old class, which is called Contemporary Music Ensemble, which I teach every, every fall. Okay. And that class um, focuses more on performance of contemporary works, so... Last fall, we did a show that was based on John Cage's songbooks and his composition songbooks and aria. And we, this semester, we're doing several different works by um, recent contemporary composers, including my piece, Intimate Addictions. And this, uh, this ensemble combines vocalists and instrumentalists? It is very eclectic and it's very different every semester. Okay. It is currently I have one vocal vocalist, uh, but she's actually a composition major. So often we it's a combination between composition majors and performance majors, undergraduates and graduates. It's kind of all of the kids who are interested in things that are a little bit more different. Right, right, <laughs> so right, right. It becomes eclectic and very strange instrumentation every semester, which is exciting. A little challenging for programming pieces. I, yeah. We always have to do scores that have open instrumentation because I never know what, um, who's going to be part of the class. Yeah. But, 
but very exciting. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> so, no, it sounds sounds terrific. Sounds terrific. And those two classes, I've been able to really connect with my own personal research and share with my students of things that I have a strong passion for. But it seems like you've also kind of crossed over the aisle into the visual art program with the with the uh, Innova program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so my husband, Paul Mitchell, is a visual artist, and he also does interdisciplinary work. I've actually commissioned him to compose a um, score for my students as part of a different project that I did a couple of years ago with one of my classes. And he writes and um, just, just really incredible work. And he was working for a while at Innova as the gallery manager and um, started a conversation with the artistic director about doing a series that was interdisciplinary in nature and focusing on time-based media. So things that would be temporal and only last one evening, things that are really common in the music world and becoming more, more and more part of the art world. So he proposed the possibility of doing this and asked me if I would co-curate with him. Our ideas for the series really came out of a strong desire to do things that were genuinely interdisciplinary and invite people who were doing things that were genuinely interdisciplinary or things that were radically experimental in nature. We've been really lucky with some of the um, with all, I should say, all of the events that we've been able to put on, and they've all been quite different and unique. For example, last year we were able to um, host Maya Racha, who gave a brilliant performance of electronics and voice on the series, in addition to several other artists and events. Um, in addition to one particular show, which was called Caught Up Femme Pop, which was all film work that we had curated together. So it's been a huge learning opportunity for me and really enthralling and exciting. And as you were saying earlier, um, talking about your podcast being a wonderful opportunity for you to meet a lot of different creative people. Um, similarly with Sensoria, it's been an incredible opportunity for both of us to meet and collaborate and work with individuals, um, yeah. meet new people. So it's also been very exciting, I think, for the community. We've had a really strong uh, turnout, especially from people outside of the academic community, which is exciting to be doing something on campus that is inviting a lot of people who aren't inherently part of academia. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and it's been a wonderful opportunity for our students to meet some individuals as well. Great. We actually, yeah, we actually have a Sensoria coming up um, on the 19th of this month. We'll be hosting John Mueller and a brand new body of work of his for solo percussion and voice and electronics. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Well, we're getting on in time here. I think we should wrap. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and move to the last segment, which is... I always like to close the programs by getting advice or um, kind of however you want to take it. But 
How does one live and sustain a creative life? So I feel like my entire life is cultivated around maintaining and sustaining my own creative practice. And both on a very personal level and in terms of the career path that I've chosen, um, I think it's really important for myself to set up my living space as a functional workspace for myself as an artist and to set up a habits and practice um, for myself. I think it's extremely important to give myself time and space to work, to um, develop ideation, both in towards the end of a project, but definitively to give myself long-term time to develop ideas. And that changes radically depending on if the university is in session, if it's the summer and I have more time to actually dig into or potentially catch up on my career as a composer and a performer. And um, if I had the opportunity to do residencies, which is another incredible way to work and function and collaborate with people. I think setting up and cultivating strong, genuine relationships with other artists is extremely important, both professional relationships and really close personal relationships with other creative practitioners. So, like, I'm very lucky that my husband is an artist and we can continuously challenge each other's ideas and push each other, but also support each other and give constant conversations, critiques, sharing of ideas. It's really wonderful to have people like that in your life. And I think really important um, as part of sustaining your creative practice. Terrific. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's no, it's great advice and great insight. Well, I think we should probably wrap. Is there anything else uh, in closing that you'd like to say? Well, I would just like to say thank you for inviting me to do this and for performing New Burnus. I'm really looking forward to hearing your students' realization of the work. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for your uh, beautiful work. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting your feedback on, on the performance as well. So we'll be in Absolutely. touch, and uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Sounds great. Have a nice night. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.